Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Scott. Oh, oh, hey, hey, everybody. It's an early morning for us. It's an early morning. Poindexter's got to work early. Poindexter. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. And make it a really thin toque, because it's hot out there. Yep. This is episode 85. Ooh, we are 15 away from 100, my man. I know. Wow. <laughs> Your math is getting getting better as we get closer, because I think there's less... Not, less to be calculated? To yeah, yeah. It's not like it was 67. I'm like, oh, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what is that? What's, the, what's, the, what's left after that? I think it's 40. On with the show. Uh, while I was researching other cases, I stumbled across this one. I'd planned another case for this week, but uh, as I read the extensive court documents on this case, I was pulled in and felt compelled to tell this story. Mm-hmm. In this episode, we're covering the 2008 murder of respected Vancouver Island nurse named James Shannon at the hands of a man named Kim Winslow Rothgord. The two met through an online dating site and their very first encounter was fatal for James Shannon. Oh, no. This is Date with Death, the murder of James Shannon. This case takes place in Port Alberni, B.C., a small city on the island that has been in the news recently. It is a tiny place. Why has it been in the news recently? Well, specifically, Port Alberni is the home to Briar Schmigelski and oh, Cam yes. McLeod. Yes, yes, yes. They're the fugitives wanted in connection with the homicides of Leonard Dick of Vancouver and earlier Australian Lucas Fowler and American China Deese. And currently on the run. Yeah. As this is recorded. Exactly. So they killed these people in northern BC and then took off east. 
I know people who live in Port Alberni. Most are worried and embarrassed about what's been going on and how their city has been portrayed in the news. But many admit that it has the city has its issues. Mm. Although quite tiny as cities go, Port Alberni, with its population of nearly 18,000, sees its share of crime. In 2018, McLean's Magazine ranked the city as the 19th most dangerous city in Canada. Oh. With a crime severity index of 137, which is above the Canadian average of 70.96. And the city ranked number 7 on the Violent Crime Severity Index, with a score of 181, which is double the Canadian average of 75.25. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's like our own Thunder Bay. According to McLean's, quote, the report ranks communities according to the Crime Severity Index, CSI, not the other CSI, mm. a Statistics Canada measure of all police-reported crime which takes into consideration both the volume and seriousness of offenses. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Despite these statistics, in an article on albernivalleynews.com from April 2019, Port Alberni's RCMP officer in charge, Inspector Brian Hunter, said Port Alberni is, quote, a safe place to be. And he said, these aren't stranger and str these aren't stranger on stranger assaults that are happening in this community. You can go to other communities where it's not safe to walk through the park. That's not what's happening in Port Alberni, end quote. Uh, I mean, I get what he's saying, but that so implying that it's more uh, localized. Yeah, so what he's saying is most violent crime in Port Alberni is between people who already know each other yeah. or family members. Which, I mean, he kind of diminishes the seriousness of that, but I get what he's saying. Yeah. I get what he's saying. Booze and drugs are often contributing factors in the crimes as well. Yeah. But this seems to be a, a trend in many of the more, quote, dangerous communities in Canada. It definitely seems to go hand in hand with socioeconomic issues as well. Yep. Uh, have a listen to the Thunder Bay podcast by Canada Land for a real uh, intense take on this. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. No, I mean, maybe not if you live in Thunder Bay, but... Yeah. It's, well, a, real, it's a really good uh, uh, case example of what we're talking about here. Even before that, I listened to that podcast when I went through Thunder Bay last year. I could feel that little bit of intensity where I was downtown. Mm, really? Yeah. yeah mm. I just felt... Hmm, there's a lot of people with drug and alcohol problems yeah. down there. Which, and you could see it, just yep. like downtown Vancouver. Yep. Yep. This case, however, received very little media attention. In fact, almost none outside British Columbia. Perhaps as the victim was a 52-year-old openly gay man, it's not a track to cover. Mm. It speaks to a lot of bias in the mainstream media, that's for sure. Yeah, well, okay, well... So they'll say, who wants to hear about that? Well, I do. I would like to hear about a crime that happened in my neighborhood, especially one as interesting as this one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a... Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to get cussy. <laughs> yeah. Almost all the research for this story comes directly from very detailed court documents on the case. In fact, uh, one of the decisions was over 200 pages. So wow. uh, it's like a book that I had to read to uh, put this story together. Uh, so all the facts are facts that come directly from court documents. Okay, right on. On the morning of February 15, 2008, James Shannon didn't show up for his 7 a.m. shift at West Coast General Hospital. 
just over four kilometers from his home. A staffing clerk at the hospital tried to get in touch with him that day as not showing up for a scheduled shift was unusual for James. He didn't show up for subsequent shifts either. We're unsure if the same procedures were followed and it appears as though no one ever reported James Shannon missing. What we do know is that nine days later on February 24th, 2008, a friend of James Shannon's named Shailene Grover found out he wasn't showing up for work. She'd been emailing and calling him but was receiving no responses to her repeated messages. At 8 p.m. that night, Shailene and her husband drove to James Shannon's small bungalow at 2637 2nd Avenue in Port Alberni. The house was in darkness and James' truck was parked in its usual spot in the back. Shailene and her husband checked around the outside of the house with a flashlight and found nothing out of place, except a courier's envelope leaning against the front door. Being considerate, they placed the envelope between the storm door and the front door. After a quick conversation with some next-door neighbors, who said they hadn't seen James in days, the Grovers left, thinking James must be out with friends. After what was probably a sleepless night, Mr. Grover decided to check out James Shannon's place again the next morning. The daylight painted a different picture. The back door was ajar and open four to six inches behind the closed storm door. Peering through a window, Mr. Grover saw that the house looked as though it had been ransacked. He called Shailene and told her something was wrong. Mr. Grover went into the house through the front door which he found unlocked, bringing in the courier envelope still between the two doors. Grover started for the basement but something told him to check the bedroom first so he turned and headed there. Inside the bedroom were large piles of debris on and by the bed, which consisted of various items from around the household including blankets, towels, etc. The wall above the bed was splashed with what looked like dried blood and the room stank. Rather than investigate any further, Mr. Grover exited the house and called Shailene, telling her to call police. Shailene called the cops as shaken up Mr. Grover left the house to wait for the cops to arrive. Just afternoon on February 25, 2008, Constable Henderson of the Port Alberni RCMP arrived at James Shannon's residence after Shailene Grover's call for a welfare check on James. Mr. Grover told Constable Henderson what he'd seen inside. Henderson went in and verified the mess inside the home, the blood spatter on the walls and floor of the bedroom, and that, to his experienced nose, the bedroom smelled of death. Henderson called for backup and another patrol officer, Constable Haldane, arrived soon after. After clearing the rest of the ransacked house, the constables entered the bedroom, using their flashlights to get a better feel for what was there. I have such empathy for... Uh folks who have to find their family or friends violently uh, murdered. I mean, I know they didn't, he didn't necessarily find them, but saw a lot of evidence. Like, that'll haunt you. I can imagine, like, just coming out to the front lawn and collapsing and, like, oh, it's just something that you have to live with for the rest of your life. From court documents... Constable Henderson observed big pools or puddles of blood on the floor as he walked around the bed. As he shone his flashlight back and forth across the bed, Constable Henderson wondered why debris was piled so high in the bed to a height of about one and a half feet. 
When he saw a portion of what he believed to be a nose and a mustache, he indicated that they should leave the room, and they exited the house at approximately 12.25 p.m. When they walked out, Constable Henderson said they tried not to disturb anything more than they had by walking in. He said they did not turn on any lights or move anything with their feet that he was aware of. They waited outside the house for the other officers to arrive. There was a massive amount of blood in the bedroom, more than a few of the attending officers had ever seen at a crime scene before or since. The attack in that room had been nothing short of savage. Yeah, I think this is something that we don't give uh, uh, first responders enough credit for, for uh, the things that they have to see daily and encounter daily. Yeah, for sure. Like, wow. In a weird twist, shortly after the discovery of James Shannon's body, the cops had their suspect in hand. Hmm? In fact, he'd already made statements about being raped in the days prior to the discovery of James Shannon's body. Okay, alright. On February 16th, 2008, 40-year-old Kim Winslow Rothgord had attempted to commit suicide at the home of his mother and stepfather. RCMP attended. Rothgord had used a blue disposable razor to cut his arms and inside his elbow and claimed to have swallowed 29 amitriptyline pills at 25 milligrams apiece. Mm. Amitriptyline is an antidepressant and overdose can be fatal. There was a large amount of blood at the scene and soaked into his mattress. Yuck. Rothgord, a divorced father of four with a checkered past including arrests, drug and alcohol abuse problems and even some previous jail time was transported to the hospital by ambulance. This wasn't the first time cops had dealt with Kim Rothcourt that week. Oh, wow. He'd been seen on the morning of February 14th, 2008, acting erratically and carrying a jar full of cash, mostly loonies and toonies, at a 7-Eleven at 3rd and Mar Street, about three and a half blocks north of James Shannon's residence. Well, well, well. After grabbing a cab to a local hostel, where he'd made a scene in the kitchen with a woman who was his ex-girlfriend, he was picked up by police from court documents, quote, Catherine Basket, a resident at the time, was called to the kitchen by the supervisor. She recalled that once Mr. Rothcourt left the kitchen and went outside, he continued to cause problems by yelling and swearing. Ms. Basket said that Mr. Rothcourt had a peanut butter jar cut in half containing coins and green bills on top, like $20 bills. She estimated that he had at least 500 bucks. She said he was giving the money to everyone, loonies, toonies, and quarters. He also had a container of tobacco and was passing out tobacco. As people approached him, he would grab a handful and give it to whoever approached. This went on for 10 or 15 minutes until he was asked to leave. When she asked him where he got it, he said that he had stolen it from a neighbor. <laughs> he had a confrontation with a hostile staff member, and then the police came to arrest him. Ms. Basket recalled that the police took the one jar with the money and she did not know what happened to the one with the tobacco. The police pointed a taser at him when they arrived but did not have to use it. The police talked to the man and tried to get him to relax and calm down, which appeared to happen once he was arrested and handcuffed, end quote. Yeah, definitely acting very bizarre. Yeah. You know, and one doesn't typically walk around with a half peanut butter jar full of loonies toonies and 20s which for our american friends that we have one dollar and two dollar coins that's right called loonies and toonies 
He'd been taken to the RCMP cells to sleep off his drug and alcohol-induced stupor and released the day before his suicide attempt. Something was causing him major stress. This is along the lines of the bizarre behavior that profilers ask the public to watch for when they're looking for an unknown subject. Yep, do you have any friends acting bizarre or strangely? Since a crime. The problem is, at this point, they had no idea that a crime had been committed or why Rothcourt was mentally decompensating so quickly. But even though they didn't ask or put out a look out for this kind of behavior people already had noticed yep at the hospital after Rothcourt's suicide attempt it was determined that he had been exaggerating the amount of pills that he'd taken and alcohol that he'd drunk that day he was very responsive scoring 15 of 15 on the Glasgow coma scale so the overdose was not affecting him Mm -hmm. in fact there were no signs of OD at all Mm mm-hmm A test for alcohol showed there was none in his system either. His wounds were easily tended to and considered, although bloody, mostly superficial. Okay. From court documents, quote, Upon admission, Mr. Rothgort told Nurse Sandy Elsden that he had no problem with bowel movements. This will make sense later on. He told her he tried to commit suicide because he was 40 years old and still lived with his parents, and that he had just got a $40,000 bill from his ex-wife and an $18,000 bill from ICBC, end quote. That's a lot of loot. Yeah, so he owes a lot of money and, you know, depressed, all those kind of things. Yep. Erring on the side of caution, the doctor attending decided to keep Rothgort on the psych ward for a few days to observe him. Yep. His mom and his girlfriend, Shelly Dan, visited him the next day, and Shelly would come back a few times during his stay on the ward, and this will also be important later on. Okay, noted. On the morning of February 18, 2008, he began crying in a conversation with a psychiatrist, Michael Hiltz. Rothgort began to tell a story. From Dr. Hiltz's notes as entered into evidence, quote, He was very ashamed and embarrassed to, quote, finally tell someone the truth, I was raped. He decided to attempt a date with a male he met on the internet. He went to the home of this male who he had never met before. He drank most of three bottles of wine and ingested some cannabis and one line of cocaine. The male then tightened a belt around Mr. Rothgort's neck and sodomized Mr. Rothgort with a wine bottle, then his penis. All the while, the male was threatening him with a hammer. Mr. Rothgort was was able to break free, hit the male with the hammer, and run out of the residence. He ultimately became overwhelmed with shame and guilt and fear of what others would say and tried to end his own life. He told his mother about this over the weekend and she was looking for an attorney for him and otherwise he planned to inform police of the rape today once his mother arrives. He has not drank alcohol for a week. He had pain on defecation from the rape, end quote. The last point ran contrary to what he had told the admissions nurse. Yeah, yeah, and uh, his description of the attack, he hit him once with the hammer, seems to differ quite greatly. Well, we'll see. Well, you... It already was talked about. There were multiple blood pools, Mm -hmm. you know, so like it it definitely sounds like there was a hell of a lot more than one hammer hit. 
The next day, he told a similar story to another friend who had been visiting him. He also interacted with Nurse Judy McGinnis that morning. According to court documents, quote, He was distressed that the police had not yet come to get his statement. He told her that the alleged rape incident was going to be his first time with, his, with a man sexually because he had just wanted to experience it. He stated that his alleged rapist seemed like a, quote, nice fellow in the beginning. For reasons we're unaware of, even after Kim Rothcourt asked to speak with police about his alleged rape, they did not attend to speak to Rothcourt until two days later, on the 20th of February. Hmm. And that one really kind of bugged me a little bit. Yeah, I can understand. Even if this gentleman is known to you. Yep. He is in the psych ward. Yep. Wouldn't you find it necessary to go and have a conversation with him right away? You would 100% think so. But I don't know why that didn't happen. Yeah. So it just didn't happen. Yeah. Awaiting the arrival of police, Rothcourt was begging for Adavan to help him calm down. He was given one milligram hours before Constable Nielsen of the Port Alberni RCMP arrived to take a statement at 6.30 that night. Hmm. Rothcourt described meeting a man named Jim over the internet on Plenty of Fish. They agreed to meet at Mr. Shannon's residence on the evening of February 13, 2008. Rothcourt described how his mother drove him to the man's residence. They stopped along the way to purchase a bottle of wine. Rothcourt said that Jim seemed like a fairly decent guy. They drank the wine together and Rothcourt said he was tipsy and made his way to the bathroom to pee. Rothcourt said when he came out of the bathroom, he was surprised by Jim, now naked and aroused. He was confronting him violently. Rothcourt told Constable Nielsen that Jim had a belt and put it around his neck and forced him onto the living room floor. He was then forced to perform oral sex on the older man. After that, Rothcourt said Jim sodomized him with a wine bottle, calling him little bitch, a little slut, and you're going to be next. Then Rothcourt described how Jim picked him up by the throat and threw him onto the bed. Rothcourt claimed that Jim had a hammer in his hand and was menacing him. Rothcourt was unclear about where the hammer had come from, but Jim allegedly was choking him with the handle down across his neck. Rothcourt said that Jim turned him over on his stomach and violated him from behind. Mr. Rothcourt then described struggling to get Jim off him. When Jim went to reach for something, Mr. Rothcourt said he quickly grabbed the hammer and hit Jim in the head. Rothcourt claimed that after being hit, Jim slumped over and rolled off him. Rothcourt said, quote, I hit him a couple of times, wham, wham, and then I got out of there. End quote. So he does admit to hitting multiple times. Well, twice. Wham, wham. Yeah. At no time during this interview did Rothcourt claim to have or show any evidence of injury from the attack by Jim. Hmm. Constable Nielsen promised to have a conversation with the man at the address he'd been given, but after checking the residence on the evening of February 20th and finding no one home and the house in darkness, Constable Nielsen left. It is not mentioned in any documents I've read whether there was any subsequent attempts to contact James Shannon after Rothcourt's claims of rape against him. Okay. Oh, wow. So the RCMP yeah. went to the house and the man is laying in there dead. Yeah, for damn near nine days, if my math was correct. Uh, at this point, oh, February 20th, 
is seven days. Jeez. Yeah. After a few more days in hospital, Rothgar began receiving passes to attend 12-step meetings. He came back agitated one evening, claiming some female members of the group had, quote, called him down, which we assumed to mean he had a poor interaction with them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what exactly that means. Called him down. The next day, Saturday, February 23rd, 2008, he was signed out overnight by his stepfather and went to another meeting where he told the group he'd, quote, passed out and was, quote, sodomized by a man. So he shared that at a meeting with yeah. people. He was, finally sh- he was finally signed out of the hospital on February 25th, 2008, as people were locking, as the police were locking down James Shannon's residence and investigating a brutal murder scene. So the day they're there investigating is the day he was let out of the hospital. Yep. Hmm. At 4.26 the next day, at his mother's home, RCMP arrest Kim Rothgort, charging him with the murder of James Shannon. As he's being arrested, Rothgort was upset and talking. Here are some of the comments that he made. Quote, I did my statement, you know. I was raped. I want to go back to the hospital. You guys know what happened to me. So, and stuff, so. End quote. Yeah, okay. And we'll take a break here and come back with the conclusion of this story. And we're back. So what do you think of this so far, Scott? Yeah, so he's really, every chance he gets, he's asserting that he was raped. Mm-hmm. He's asserting that constantly. Yep. And it's a tough thing. Uh, yep. You, he, want, you want to believe every because, rape yeah, victim uh, or somebody who claims that. Yeah, because the odds are that it's legit. The You know, you and to have been violated and then not have people believe you is the worst thing. And so, you know, I, I want to, there's a part of me that's saying like, okay, well, yeah, you know, but I, something also just feels very off. Something feels very off. Um, More shall be revealed. Yeah, okay, good. Once in RCMP lockup, Rothgort's agitated behavior continued. He was doing multiple push-ups in his cell and began complaining of a, quote, ripping pain through his arm and chest. An ambulance was called, and he was rushed to the hospital. He continued talking. And here's some of the things that he said. Quote, Unfortunate, I've been charged with murder, and I don't really feel good. I don't know if it's an anxiety attack or I'm having a heart attack, so it's kind of unfortunate. What about something to calm me down, like an Ativan or something? Because I don't know if you know what's happening to me, but two weeks ago I was raped. And I hit the guy with a hammer. Now all of a sudden they're coming to arrest me with murder two weeks later. And, finally, how come they didn't go arrest this guy that raped me? End quote. What an odd thing to say. Why didn't they come arrest him? Because he's dead. Exactly. You killed him. You don't arrest dead people. That's what I was hoping for. After it was determined that he was not having a cardiac issue, Kim Rothgort was brought back to the RCMP cells. He wasn't forthcoming, continuing to claim that he was brutally raped and that he was too drunk to know what he was doing. The evidence that emerged said Rothgort was not telling the whole story. Mm, Okay. Just to set the stage a bit, 
Kim Rothcourt claimed James Shannon had been able to physically control him, you know, throw him on the yeah, bed, yeah, he grab made... him by the throat, pick him up, all these kind of things. My visuals were of this very uh, huge size discrepancy and being able to toss him about and, and control him. Right. Here's a comparison of the two men. Okay. Physically. Mr. Shannon, the dead man, was 52 years old when he'd been killed. He was five foot seven inches tall and weighed 163 pounds. He was somewhat overweight and had extra body fat. He was not at all fit. Mm -hmm. Okay. In contrast, according to court documents, Kim Rothgort is between 5'10 and 6 feet tall. He weighed between 180 and 185 pounds in February of 2008. He exercised a great deal and was very physically fit. He ran, went to gyms, and trained by lifting weights using a punching bag, and did a series of exercising, exercises including many push-ups. He had a background in boxing and also held a black belt in Shotokan karate. He had worked as a bouncer. So he can handle himself, and he's a decent size. Right. So he's much bigger than the other man. Yeah. Okay. And much more fit than the other man. You know, being devil's advocate again, there's a, you know, sometimes smaller people have no concern or no issue controlling somebody bigger because the threat of violence the threat you know having a hammer and stuff but eh, i some, yeah this is just feels off the two met online in february through the dating site plenty of fish much of the evidence about the case was gleaned from the user accounts and computers of both men mm. rothgort's profile name was merman licks and shannon's was antares five Merman Licks. Merman Licks. From court documents, Mr. Rothgort's profile stated, quote, he wanted well-endowed older men. He provided a very little personal information other than his age of 40 years, race, height of 5'10", and that he lived in Port Alberni. He answered, prefer not to say, to a number of the other standard questions. He stated he was looking for a man for a, quote, intimate encounter and indicated that his profession was, quote, porn star. Under interests, he said, he, he stated, having sex with older men. Under about me, he said, quote, I would like to meet an older man or two for sex. Uh, crave well endowed, I am a very sexual person, and I know I could treat the proper man to a really great time, end quote. His first date preference was, quote, dinner, wine, my place, or yours. Hmm. All sounds quite familiar. Yeah. In his profile, Mr. Shannon referred to himself as Island Man. It contained a picture of him dressed casually, indicated that he lived in Port Alberni, worked in healthcare, and was 52 years old and 5'8 in height. He indicated his first name was Jim, and he was hoping to meet any other gay men. He was hoping to meet other gay men in the area and hoping to find a man for a long-term relationship. He listed his hobbies as reading, skiing, music, biking, camping, and doing nothing. His first date preference was to go somewhere for a walk and have a chance to talk, end quote. Seems like a very normal fella, yeah. according to his profile. Yeah. Rothgord also had another profile on Plenty of Fish. This one he used to pick up women. The username there was Hornyman67. Rothgord had met other men but it is unclear whether they had any sex. Hmm, okay. After some back and forth, one message stood out in which the self-deprecating James Shannon said, quote, 
I just want to say that I'm not an attractive man and I don't have a body to die for. Rothgort simply shot back, sure. <laughs> okay. As their meetup was set for February 13, 2008, sexually specific and explicit messages between the men flew back and forth on the site. It was clear the encounter was to be consensual. Okay. All right. They talked specifically about having sex the first night they met. Okay. After James Shannon was dead, Kim Rothgort had called his older son, Riley, then 18 years old, using James Shannon's phone. Oh, boy. Riley later testified that in the call, his father said he'd just killed a guy and needed Riley to go down there. Riley said that in the response, he said, what do you mean you just killed a guy? And his father responded, I killed a guy... I killed a guy, and I need your help. I need you to come here. Then Riley said, what do you mean you need me to come there? And his father said, come here, I need your help. Riley left his girlfriend's place and went to the address that his father had given him. Oh, no. Oh. Riley saw blood spots on Rothgort's face as he was pulled into the house by his dad. He asked what happened, and Rothgort told his son that he'd been doing drugs and the man had attempted to, quote, take him out with a hammer. Rothgort claimed to have, quote, blocked the attack and hit the man. Riley testified, quote, I believe my father told me he struck the man with his fist and he took the hammer to the man. He told me he beat the man with the hammer. He said he hit him in the head a couple of times. Oh. Yeah, it's just the visuals. Like, there's something, well, something about murder all the time that's uncomfortable. But, yeah, yeah I can almost feel, like... Uh, thumping on my head yeah. when talking about getting hit by a hammer. Oof. Yeah, it's just, yeah. After chatting about burning down the house and Riley refusing to help in that way, Rothcourt was extremely agitated. He was threatening to kill Riley at this point as well. You've got to be kidding me. No. The next few paragraphs are quite graphic, like they haven't been already. We feel these are important to the story. Yeah. From court documents, Riley said, his father, quote, got a bit angry of what happened at the guy, calling the guy a puke and a worthless piece of shit and all that. Then Riley said that his father went into the bedroom and attacked the body again with another sort of weapon, screwdriver or knife, and that he did not see it, just heard sounds of him attacking the body. He could see his father's legs through the doorway to the bedroom. Riley said that he heard the stabbing of a body, a puncturing sound, a knife would make. Based on his previous deer hunting experience, he said, well, it sounded like the knife entering the hide of a deer or carcass. He said his father was in the bedroom for a minute or so. When his father came out, he was, quote, adrenalized, very excited. Riley said that his father was just saying how the guy's a disgusting slob and how he slammed candles in the guy's eyes. Oh, my God. Yeah, this behavior... And how dare you call your son? Get him involved in this and traumatize your son. Oh. The candles were part of the holdback evidence used by police to weed out the cranks. They knew only someone who'd been to the crime scene or would have been told this information by the killer would know it. After grabbing a few items and slamming them into his backpack, Rothgord and Riley left James Shannon's house. Riley had been there about 10 minutes. Ugh. As Riley dropped his father off at a local strip club blocks away around 1 a.m., Kim Rothcourt restated his threats on Riley's life. 
that if he told anyone son or not, he was a dead man. Riley said that he wanted nothing to do with this and drove back to his girlfriend's house. Oh my God, so your father calls you over to help do whatever you're doing at a murder scene. So that unto itself is traumatizing, and then your own father is threatening to kill you mm -hmm. if you talk about it like yep. uh, a poor kid. Well, no wonder he testified against it. Yeah, right? I was wondering at first, I'm like, this must not, must not be a good dynamic if he's testifying against his father. But there was probably also the threat of uh, the cops knew what was going on through phone records because they would have known mm -hmm. that the phone was used to call his mm -hmm. girlfriend's place. Yep. So either talk or you're going down too. I don't, I don't think they would have had to, from what limited knowledge I have, I don't think they would have had to twist his arm very much. Yeah. The next known sighting of Rothcourt would be at the 7-Eleven nearby prior to his arrest at the hostel. While in the psych ward, Rothcourt told his girlfriend that he'd killed a man that without her help, he'd be in big trouble. He asked her to go into James Shannon's house on two occasions, once to obtain the hammer he'd claimed was in James Shannon's skull, and another time to steal James Shannon's laptop that he knew had damning evidence in it. Yeah, uh, evidence describing what they were planning to do, yeah. which would discredit his claim. Yes. Shelley did go to the home twice. She'd failed to find the hammer and was unable to dislodge the laptop from its cables. According to court documents, quote, she said she reported back to Mr. Rothcourt that the man was dead based on the form under the textiles in the doorway and the smell in the house. Although it is not clear when she did so. Hmm. Disgusting. On February 20th, 2008, another longtime friend of Rothgort's went to see him in the hospital. Rothgort also told him he'd been raped and had killed the man who had done it to him. Rothgort asked his friend to burn down James Shannon's house to cover up the crime. But he, too, didn't follow through. At trial, the evidence against Rothcourt was mountainous. There was DNA, blood spatter evidence, fingerprint and footprint evidence, as well as Rothcourt's own statements. Mm -hmm. The evidence given by the forensic pathologist indicates a frenzied attack, and this is detailed and, and sickening as well, So, and I left a lot out, so be prepared. Mr. Shannon's skull, with its extensive skull fractures, looked similar to the shell of a hard-boiled egg that had been struck by a spoon. Ugh. There were many broken pieces of the skull under the left side of his nose, under the left eye, and the left side of his head, from the back of the left eye to the, e to the left ear. Dr. Litwin concluded that the injury to the shoulder and the four similarly shaped injuries to the neck constituted five separate blows consistent with being delivered by the claw of a hammer. He said the two additional injuries higher up the neck and more under the jaw could also have been caused by the claw of the hammer, but they were less distinct injuries. The insertion of the candle causing blunt force injury to the right eye, the right hemisphere of the brain, and the brain stem was associated with some evidence of bleeding in microscopic tissue, such that this injury may have been a component of the blunt force injuries that ultimately caused Mr. Shannon to die. The candle was inserted until it came up against the back of the skull. Holy shit. Uh, the four stab wounds did not cause bleeding in microscopic tissue and therefore occurred at a time when the heart was not pumping blood. Two of them 
would have been immediately life-threatening in the absence of medical attention, the ones that entered the stomach and liver. Also in this group was a broken left seventh rib. There were no defensive wounds on the man's body. Oh, my God, that's horrid. Yeah. Oh, the things he did to this man. It's horrendous. It's disgusting, yeah. After the trial, the jury found Kim Winslow Rothcourt guilty of second-degree murder and James Shannon's death. Right after his sentencing, Rothcourt said words that would come back to haunt him in an inmate classification interview into the prison. Mm. I was told by my lawyer not to say anything about it because we might appeal, but I don't mind talking. I put an ad on Plenty of Fish website in the Mail Seeking Mail column, I guess because I had a sexual relationship with my late twin brother for years. My early sexual experiences were male. I thought I would see about it. We met up there and was a lot of alcohol and booze. We talked about fantasies. Mine was to be with two men and his was being choked and that kind of thing. It was disgusting on both our parts. I remember a wine bottle being involved in strangulation. There was methamphetamine at the scene. I don't know where the hammer came from. I don't remember much of it. I reported the crime to police three days later when I was in hospital after a suicide attempt. So despite his claims of it being his first time, it was not, and he had had a sexual relationship with his brother. And according to court documents as well, there was no evidence that any choking had happened with James Shannon. So he said he had a fantasy about being choked and... Uh, Rothcourt sort of talks about maybe that happened, but there was no evidence of that happening at all. Yeah, I don't seem to be able to get past the uh, sexual relationship with his late twin brother. Mm -hmm. um, that's all kinds of uncomfortable. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. On appeal. And to, an, to admit that. Oh, okay. Yeah, just to admit that is... Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, he felt like he had nothing to lose at this point, I, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. On appeal, though, a new trial was ordered, as the judge has improperly instructed the jury on the meaning of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh, God. From a Globe and Mail article, quote, The appeal court ruling said the judge was wrong in telling juries a conviction could be based on a lack of evidence, and that he also erred in other areas related to the defense of provocation and intoxication. Oh, no. End quote. Apparently, the two defenses, intoxication and provocation, should have been considered separately, but the judge mm. said to consider them together. together. Yeah, okay. After his second trial, though, in 2014, Kim Winslow Rothcourt was again convicted of second-degree murder. From an article on DailyExtra.com by Jeremy Hainsworth, dated August 13, 2014, quote, Rothcourt... A 200-pound trained boxer told the court that he had been attacked and raped by Shannon, who was five foot seven and weighed 163 pounds. The judge said, It cannot be suggested in this case that Mr. Rothcourt experienced a moment of, quote, homosexual panic in the face of sexual advances toward him by Mr. Shannon, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Elizabeth Arnold Bailey ruled in an upholding the jury's conviction on June 30th. Mm, good. The judge partially rejected Rothcourt's argument based on, quote, his activities in seeking mails for sex on Plenty of Fish and the content of his Plenty of Fish messages with Mr. Shannon prior to their date. Yep. Quote, moreover, she ruled, in this day and age, I do not consider it 
likely that homosexual panic, that's in quotes, will often, if ever, provide a valid basis upon which to find provocation. Oh, good for her. Yes, very yes. good for her. Yes. So that kind of sets a precedent yes. as well. I mean, you know, they were there consensually, and perhaps there was something in this guy's brain about feeling guilty about what he had just done. Oh, I, I think um, my gut tells me that's exactly a mm-hmm. qu- he, uh, quick regret and uh, lashed out. Yeah, because what he did to the man was horrific. And But oh. at the same time, it, it wasn't provoked at all by this man other than it seemed like they were just there to have a good time. To do what they talked about doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Before declaring Rothgore guilty of second-degree murder for a second time, the judge said, quote, When I consider all the evidence that is relevant to Mr. Rothgore's state of mind, I find beyond a reasonable doubt that he possessed the requisite intent to kill Mr. Shannon when he did so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And remember last week when we ended with a profile from CanadianInmates.com? Oh, I do. Yeah. Well, guess what? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, uh... Yeah, so we're looking at a picture of Kim Rothgord right now. Oh, he's an Agassiz, huh? Yeah, yeah. but uh, he's he's a big man. Looks like he it. looks like a very fit gentleman. Yeah, uh, wearing his uh, wife beater shirt and shorts and and some flip flops, obviously at the pen. Uh, so here we go. Here's his profile on CanadianInmates.com. Name: Kim Rothgord, Institution Mountain Penitentiary. P.O. Box 1200, Agassiz, British Columbia, V0M1A0. Date of birth, October 9th, 1967. Convicted of second-degree murder. Expected release date, 2023. And that's his day parole eligibility then. Mm -hmm. Interested in corresponding with women. And here's how he describes himself. I'm 5'10", 240 pounds, and very fit and masculine. I enjoy educating myself and spend my time helping other inmates with exercise routines. I'm an animal lover and enjoy gardening. I'm very self-disciplined, no drugs or other behaviors that got me in here. I was baptized in 2012, born-again Christian and a number of three prison ministries. I'm pursuing my education to become an addictions counselor. I'm a, I am also a journeyman Class A gas fitter, graduate of Nate Edmonton, Alberta. I have four grown kids from a previous marriage and two grandkids. I'm searching for that special someone who's not materialistic and enjoys reality. I'm a singer, songwriter, bass guitarist in a prison blues band. Looking to correspond with women 18 years of age and older, race and body type are not important. It is what's inside that's important. Thanks. Well, it really is. It really is. So there you go, ladies. You know, when reading that profile, you're like, you know, hey, this sounds like a catch. Sounds like a catch. Oh, aside from the fact that, you know, murder. Yeah. Well, let's break it down a little bit. <clears throat> Please. Let's, let's break it down a little bit. So here, break, break here we have out. somebody who is preparing himself to get his parole. Mm-hmm. He's jumping through all those hoops. Yep. He's probably staying away from the drugs and all that kind of stuff yeah, in jail, yeah. you know. How great. Uh, he's born again. So he's found how Jesus. How convenient. It happens a lot in prison. Just it's good timing. Interesting how once you're in there is when it happens rather than... When, when it can aid uh, visuals in regards to yeah. one getting out. 
Yeah. Very, very, very. Very interesting. Very. What I really like is I'm searching for that special someone who is not materialistic and enjoys reality. So he's saying he wants somebody who's not a stoner or drunk, but the not materialistic is probably because... He doesn't uh, have anything. He has no material. <laughs> yeah. Because he's in jail. <laughs> Must enjoy yachts and boats. <laughs> I yeah, guess a yacht is a boat. Yeah, as far as I know, Mountain Penitentiary is not Camp Cupcake. No, no, um, no. That's, it, that's it, the yeah. that's the Max Pen. It's, it's the Max Pen. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. So he's still in Max, ladies. Yeah. If you want to correspond with somebody who's in Max and, and has a history of murdering people, waka yeah. waka. Oh. Yeah. Uh, sexy time. Hubba hubba. Yeah. So. But you know the fucked up thing. Someone he, will. Yeah, he's probably he's he's probably getting lots of yeah correspondence. Yeah, just Google these people before. You, <laughs> if you go to CanadianInmates.com, just Google the person. Especially, especially when he says convicted of murder. <laughs> do do a little Googles. Oh my God! Right? Just I mean, so yeah. he's a singer and a songwriter, writer, and a bass guitarist in a prison blues band, and James Shannon. Is in a grave somewhere. Sometimes I hear these, like, what people do in prison. I'm like, that doesn't, that sound, doesn't sound like the worst environment. He gets to play bass in a band in prison. Like, yeah. Yeah, but guess who can't? Yeah. The victim. Yeah, can't do anything. Yep, because you brutally, brutally, brutally murdered him. Yeah, I'm, I, I really don't... I don't know. We it's a big it's a bigger conversation that we can have today. Yeah, I don't I don't understand how this works. I really don't. I mean, I'd love to believe that uh, this gentleman is going to be re- rehabilitated and never do this again. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I don't. I. He's he had convictions before. He yeah. stole a stole a car and uh, you know. Yep. Uh, let me see. Uh, he yeah. has a criminal history. Yeah, he has a criminal history, and it goes all the way back to what I could find was in Red Deer, Alberta. Uh, when he was 21, he was handed a jail term for uh, being the driver at a break-in at a corner store where they stole uh, $976 worth of cigarettes and over uh, turning a toolbox causing $450 worth of damage. He was also charged for writing bad checks. He stole a winch from somebody else. So, I mean, this guy has been doing crazy things for a long time. Petty or not, he has a criminal history. Yeah, and there was a drunk driving, uh, drunk at least one drunk driving arrest. So he doesn't show a lot of care for laws. Society. Society. Yeah. He's going to do what he needs to do to get what he wants. Yeah, that's that's called antisocial behavior. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a great treat for parole. So, I wish I knew more about James Shannon. Like, there mm. was literally nothing on this uh, case. Well, healthcare worker, we, we know that, mm-hmm. which is such a, an amazing, amazing trade. Yeah. Very difficult and takes a lot of sacrifice to do. Yeah. And, you know, he was apparently a, quite a nice man. Uh, by all accounts, mm. he was just a nice person. So uh, it sounded like he was just looking for love, like really looking for love. Yeah, on, according on to his profile, I got that sense. Yeah. 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 And, you know, maybe the the tryst with, uh, you know, he was hoping that maybe this tryst with... Would lead to something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, uh 
it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And but I I was super disgusted that I couldn't find anything more on it. Yeah, you would, which is one of the challenges that our society currently has right now is we show more interest in the killer than we do the victims quite often. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that um, I was disturbed by, wait a minute, so this guy didn't show up for work for a week? Yeah, it took that long. And nobody went to his house other than his friend who had heard about it? Yep. Like, what the hell? Yep. And then... The police, you know, they find out from this guy in the psych ward that he may have been raped. He's saying that he's been raped. I would hope that the police would take that seriously and and, uh, they would uh, be off to look for this person who had possibly done this. Oh, God, yeah. And, uh, but but no, they just check the house and see it's dark and think, oh, well, I'll I'll go back. But there's no evidence that he even went back. The only... uh... Not to defend the lack of investigating or care by everybody involved, but some people really do live very uh, isolated lives. They prefer it that way. So, you know, that's part of the problem about living a very isolated life is that sometimes if you go absent, it's not noticed. But uh, you, you would think work after so many shifts missing right you would think work would be like hmm yeah we should we should do let's, something let's try to is there an emergency contact on the documents that he or even provided? one of his friends that, at work yeah. or you know somebody yeah well james isn't here again yeah but it was unusual they said that this was unusual for him to do that it yep. wasn't yep. an everyday occurrence so if it's not an everyday occurrence, what the heck is going on? Because he could have just had a heart attack. He could, you know, like there's a lot of, like you're not going to instantly think, oh, he must have been murdered. But you could think like, oh, no, is he okay? Did he have a stroke? Did he have a heart attack? Is he in a car accident? Like, let's find out what happened to him. Exactly. Anyway, I hope if I disappear sometime, Scott, uh, if Carol and I just vanish, just call the cops. I'll give it a solid 13 days. <laughs> Yeah, if Mike's not around for for the recording of the show, yeah, there's something wrong. Yeah, you could, something has gone wrong. You could just be tired. I Mike. could I could just be tired. You but could, uh, you, you could be tired. Yeah, I definitely could. Yeah, that's all, man. That's all. Oh my. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's story. Woo. Woy, yoy, yoy. Yeah. Before we go, we want to give shout outs to our Patreon patrons as usual per the use per the use yeah so first up uh, jared reese from manhattan kansas oh wow okay so there's two manhattans i did not know probably that. even more than that i did not know that one thank you jared emma massey yep i don't know where emma's from she's from manhattan kansas what yeah i know that sounds like you're just reading the one below it. What's, how dare you imply that, What Mike? does she do in Manhattan, Kansas? Uh, she's a doctor. Oh, she, a doctor? Yeah, she's a doctor. Uh, she specializes in eyebrows. Wow. Yeah, yeah, eyebrow cancer is not, it's 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 a thing. Well, that's horrible. Keep yeah. up the good work, Emma. Yeah, keep saving those eyebrows. Michelle Coleman? Yep. Is she from Coleman, Alberta? No, come on. Now now you're the one who's just taken the easy road. What? That Mike. could be, though. Well, it could be. Why do you know her? 
No. Oh, okay. Well, then, so you are just taking the easy road. Okay, so where is she from? Coleman, Alberta. <laughs> Up yours. <laughs> is she? She's the uh, direct descendant and, and uh, heir to the Coleman uh, camping gear company. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so she's got that camping money. She got that camping money? Yeah, yeah. Spread yep. it around, Michelle. Make, Thank make, you. Make it rain, Captain Money. She's making it rain, giving us some cash. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I enjoy your family's uh, uh, items. Luke Banville from St. Albert, Alberta. Hey, Luke. Thank you. Ashley Black, our patron oh, yes. from uh, Seattle. Yes. She was. She's a PM from Seattle. Now she's upped her pledge. Ashley. Another five bucks. So she's like. Ultra PM. I don't know what we would call that. Like, that's amazing. Thank you so much, wow. Ashley. Wow. And we're going to see her on August 10th. In Seattle. In Seattle at the meetup there. Yeah, I'm... you heard it here, folks. So on the 10th, we're going to have a bit of a meetup. Look at the Dark Poutine Facebook page and the Yard for details. Yeah. And come on fun. out and see us. If It'll you're, be fun. If you're in Seattle. That's right. I we've like got, Seattle. We've got like 40 people coming already. Holy crackers. Naima Vote from London, England. Oh, wow. Sweet. London, wow. England. Thank you so much. Colin Luxinger from Edmonton, Alberta. Sweet, sweet, And sweet. he's a new PM. Holy wow. smoke. Wow. What is happening? Thank you, Colin. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Uh, Colin has sent some messages to us about his grandmother, and Colin, email us at darkproteinpodcast at gmail.com with more information about that. Apparently his grandmother was murdered. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we want to learn more. Candace Colon from, where's she from? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. She likes to keep it quiet. Oh. But I once hired a, P, uh, a private investigator. Yep. To, to track her down. Oh. She's from Surrey, B.C. Oh. Yeah, well, she was actually next door, so it was, it was money not well spent on my behalf. There you go. But um, once I found her, uh, I was able to reach out and learn everything I needed to know about her. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, she's a great person. She's currently between jobs. Mm -hmm. But when I say that, it's because she uh, has two jobs. Yep. And, like, she kind of lives in between two stores. And so... I thought you meant she didn't have a job. No, no, she has two, and she lives between those two jobs. So she's between jobs. Yeah, she's between jobs. That's the worst joke. I, it really is. It really is not. It's a great joke, and can't, and, and it's not even a joke, because it's factual. It's Candace's life. Well, thanks, Candace. Yeah. David Boyd from Oshawa, Ontario. Well, thanks, David Boyd. Kayla Huggin from Airdrie, Alberta. I could use a Huggin, Kayla. Well, look at that. And okay. Lotte Quist from... Neeb, Denmark. I knew that was going to be Denmark. Well, yeah, she's our uh, our good buddy who uh, shows up for our live shows as oh, well. Oh, sweet, yes. Yeah. Dana Fairbarn from Vaughan, Ontario. Oh, thank you, Dana. Maggie Richardson from St. Mary's, Ontario. Thanks, Maggie. Lots of Ontario. Patty McInerney from West Newton, Massachusetts. Wait a minute. Newton? We live in Newton. But not West Newton. We are West Newton because it's West. Yeah. Exactly. It's West of that. Exactly. But I guess she's more West. More? No, she's more East than West. Wow. This is like math all of a sudden. <laughs> right? 
Sarah LaPrey from Carmel by the Sea, California. And wasn't Clint Eastwood uh, the uh, mayor of Carmel by the Sea? I do I believe. don't know, but that sounds like the most delicious city. <laughs> it is nice. Yeah. I've driven through it. It's it's very nice. Can you eat the city? No, you cannot. Yeah. Eliza Stoltz from Canadagua. New York. Canadagua. What is Canadagua? I think that's, she made I bet that you up. that's a native name. I bet she made that up. Like indigenous peoples? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Canadagua. Canadagua. Alexander James from Farrington, England. Whoa. Thanks, Alex. Farrington. 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 Yeah. Farrington. Yeah, Farrington. Uh, Tina Maselli is like that Joey Maselli from... Uh, from what? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't I can't know where, remember I don't know what, where you're why going. Why do I know that name? I don't know. Oh, that's uh, uh who's the boss? Oh, I don't remember anything. Yeah, Anthony Maselli. Yeah. From Quint West, Ontario. Well, thanks, Tina. Thank you, Tina. And here we have Katie Bolsover from Torfins, uh, Bankory in Great Britain. Wow, that's quite the name. Torfins yes. Bankory. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you, Kate. Yes. <laughs> thank you. You're, at least your name Your name is easier than the place you live. Exactly. And last but not least, uh, as far as patrons go, we have Miriam Cloutier from oh. Souk, BC. Whoa. Any relation to Dan? Yeah, come on. Yeah. I, I hope you're, yeah. Crazy. That's because, Wow. Uh, we had some donut money this week, and here we have from David Schreiber. Loving, uh, loving listening to your podcast. I'm really sad that I'm all caught up, but I'll be stuffing my ears with more dark poutine every week. Thanks for making my workday sane, David Schreiber. Thank you so much, David. Well, David, I'm just if you get full uh, of dark poutine, don't forget that uh, we do have after shows. Alex and Seth. Burris sent us a little love from the Yards Mississippi sector. Oh, sweet. That's nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Jennifer Guidry said, Thanks for a great podca podcast. You're not afraid. Thanks for a great podcast. You're not afraid to share the details that sometimes are worse if left to the imagination. They describe the two depravity of the crime. Enjoy the donuts. Jennifer Guidry, Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina, USA, Thanks to Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder for turning me on to you guys. Oh, we, yeah. We, well, we thank her, too. Big time, yeah. yeah. And uh, Julia Goose sent us some cash, too. Thank you, Julia. Thank and you. she didn't send us a mes message except sent by Julia Goose. Well, thank you, Julia. Much appreciated. Yeah. Oh, and Kate Bolsover from the UK, who we just mentioned. Yeah. Also... As well as being a patron, donut. sent some donut money. Wow. And just says, enjoy the donuts, guys. Thanks, Kate. Hey, thank you. You How guys generous. are amazing. Very amazing. Holy crap. Yeah. We have such cool people that listen to our show. It's really, we have the best listeners, and I, I can qualify that. Every show says that. But we know it. But we know it. We know true. it. Yeah. We've met a, a lot. We've met all of you. Whether, whether you know it or not, we've met you. Yes, God stands in your bedroom at night. But I comfort them. I just I give their hand a gentle little pat. And, yeah, it's nothing creepy. And I, I put teeth under their pillow. 
Oh, I'm the reverse tooth fairy. Did you see that picture that what somebody said was the tooth fairy and it was just a head made out of all teeth? No, but I think I've seen that image before and it gives me the heebs. It does give me the heebs. Yeah. Thanks so much to our patrons past and present for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Mm-hmm. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or for one-time support, you can send donut money via PayPal or interact to our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Cool. Sweet. So that's it for this week. Uh, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.